The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Laura Urie. Well, I already know that we're blessed tonight. I wish we could meet for lunch every day and just look at each other and encourage. And it's just such a sweet time um, to fellowship in this way. We are so grateful to all of you for your ongoing prayers for this Titus Women's Bible Study. It is such a joy to be able to share the word together in this way and to bless one another with encouragement and blossoming friendships. We are all carriers of his word. We are believers and his word is living and active within us because of his redeeming grace, the promise of his presence and his desire to use us to be salt, leaven and light to a lost world. We are partakers of his great overarching mission and I know I speak for the council when I say that we find it a joy to serve him in any way that he opens up opportunities for us. And I'm sure that is your heart as well. We are women who are living under the authority of a faithful, loving God, a God who has a plan, a God who has a covenant relationship with his people that we are subject to, but we are all so beneficiaries of our individual lives fit under this redemptive plan for the world our existence our participation in living under his will is valuable to him and to his purposes even amid all of the chaos and confusion the difficulties he is weaving a beautiful tapestry of your life and mine that we hopefully can one day look at and recognize his handiwork and forethought. We will see this in this story tonight. If you are like me, you may often question God's choices for us, where he places us, who he binds us to, how he leads us, and what he gives us to handle. But we must consider and attempt to get a glimpse of this overall overarching belief that it is part of an ongoing story that we are participating in and allowed to step in and out of, all the while being used by him. The telling of Hannah's story embraces two crucial pieces of understanding that we need to have as women of God. One is that he has a plan that we are a part of, he is working behind the scenes. He is establishing people like you and me to be instrumental in that fulfillment. The books of First and Second Samuel tell the story of how God turned Israel into a kingdom, how he sought a man after his own heart to sit on the throne, beginning the royal line that one day would run to Jesus. This is the prelude and a thoughtful weaving together of the story of King David, his pathway to a devoted faith, his writing of the great treasury of the Psalms, and of course, taking the place as the king called to reunite the tribes of Israel. 
But even before him, we are introduced to the figure of Samuel, his role in establishing David and his own exemplary life. However, his story is also preluded with this moving account of his mother, Hannah. Although it is a short and simple story, the scope of its impact on the heart of a woman's faith amid life's difficulties is a beautiful testimony. So this story of a king and a kingdom and the vital life of Samuel begins with one infertile woman pleading for a child, a son. This woman of faith demonstrates to us important lessons during especially challenging life's circumstances. The reality of her infertility and what that meant to a woman at that time is matched only by her own desire to be a mother. Her desire to have something of her own to offer God helps us to understand our own condition and response during heartbreaking realities that life confronts us with. This story is an important part of understanding how God uses life's frailties and the human condition that might seem unnoted to actually being the means of his grace being provided. I want to say that again. God uses life's frailties and the human condition that might seem unnoted to actually being the means of his grace being provided. God is preparing to make a name for himself through a miraculous birth. And the dedicated prayer of this faithful believing woman will be his appointed vessel. Hannah's story is a reminder of how God moves ahead of us and in this story planned Samuel's life by allowing his mother to be dedicated already to the mission that God had for him. Often, the lives of great saints that we read about and know about can be traced back to a praying mother. Again and again, before God laid his hand on a man, before God laid his hand on a man, he laid it on his mother and moved her to pray. In most cases, no one will pray for a child more than his mother. No one will love deeply enough to spin themselves like a mother fighting for their child's eternal condition. It is you. It is me. The power of a mother's influence on her child's spiritual awareness and his accurate view of, or his or her accurate view of God's grace is unlike any other. So we shouldn't take that lightly. In 1 Samuel, we see that Hannah is barren. Hannah was married to a very common man from Ephraim named Elkanai. He was a Levite, and he had enough means to support two wives. Each year, he left his hometown to make sacrifices to God in Shiloh. The provision that he made for his wives and their children meant that he gave portions to them. And the scriptures tell us that he gave a double portion to Hannah because of his love for her and that he understood her heart and was considerate of her suffering. He made attempts to assure her of his love and that their marriage was more to him than just the pressure of producing an heir and descendants. 
Even with this reassurance, the torment she received from others, and especially from the other wife, Peniha, only added to her distress and to her heartache. Scriptures tell us that um, she wept bitterly and persistently prayed to God, and that she made a vow to the Lord as she prayed. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This was not just a nice, neat little prayer, but it was a holy moment, a heartfelt cry with deep emotions, grief, and anguish, pouring out her soul to the Lord. She trusted that God was able to do this miracle for her, which she asked. She knew he was the only one who could hear her prayer and bring an answer. Her weeping led to worship as her fallen tears fell among her persistent prayers. And Eli the priest had been watching her, thinking that she was drunk. She was mouthing the words of her prayer and he questioned her. She responds to Eli's confrontation by saying in verses 15 and 16, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine. I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. We don't know from the text if she shared with Eli the reason for her sorrow and grief but he quickly sees her need and the sincerity of her heartfelt prayers. He then tells her, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. His encouragement and the blessing of his words gave Hannah hope and strengthened her confidence that the Lord would move. In verse 18, we are told that her face was no longer downcast. This was a huge blessing to Hannah as the high priest gently gave his approval and blesses her request. She went away feeling peace and having the knowledge that God had heard her. Something changed at that moment. We know that she had prayed and laid her concerns prior to this and that he knew her heart, but something was different about this moment. This caused me personally to reflect on my own faith when I rise up from prayer. What needs to happen for me to get up off my knees after my time of prayer and know that he has answered even without vision of it? We know that the Lord would hear Hannah and give her a son. Through prayer, Hannah's barren womb bore an anointed son to rescue Israel. Her son Samuel would establish Israel's kingdom begin the nation's prophetic line, and of course, be the appointed mediator to God's people. One commentary wrote that Samuel needed to be born at a crucial time in history, not sooner, not later. He needed for Hannah to be the kind of woman and at a place where she was willing to allow Samuel to be brought up by Eli and to be raised as a priest. God's purposes were far greater than only granting Hannah her desire for a baby and to be a mother. 
Samuel's unusual birth was an early indication of the special dedication Samuel would have to the Lord throughout his whole life. Hannah herself believed in the power of prayer itself to alter the course of events. And I hope we all do as well. Our prayers are crucial for shaping the lives of our children and God's redemptive purposes for them. But we likely have no idea how impactful their lives will be and how he will use them if our obedience precedes theirs. Let's make some changes in our approach to prayer within our next season of life. Be sure that your hearts are attentive to his voice in the quiet, peaceful moments where joy is natural and filled, as well as in the noisy, storm-filled torrents. Her story does continue. We read that when Samuel reached the traditional age of weaning, she took him back to the tabernacle in Shiloh where she had prayed for him and reintroduced herself to Eli the priest. She handed him over and we don't see any evidence of hesitation from Hannah to give Samuel over as the fulfillment to the promise that she had made years before. Through her words, we hear her voice of thankfulness and sustained surrender that was promised to her by fulfilling her vow, which was full of gratitude and joy. As mothers and grandmothers, we know how earnestly we have prayed for our children and that God's hand would be on them throughout their lives and use them for his purposes. This desire for them to be used of God means that we are surrendering our will for them. We don't pray, Lord, I hand them over to you, but please don't do this with their life. Or please don't do this. Our surrender to his overall plan for our children and grandchildren's lives means that at whatever cost, we desire that the God of the universe has access to them in any way he chooses. In faith, we know that he wants what is good for them. He wants to establish a covenant relationship with them, and he wants to ignite a love for the world in them that Jesus desires for all of his disciples. I prayed for my four children in this way. I claimed scripture for their lives, their salvation, and for their heart to be turned toward him for whatever he chose. Even when my daughter, soon after college, left and gave her life to the country of Thailand to work amidst those in sex slavery, working amidst those in physical bondage, often at the will of their parents for financial gain, did I desire for my daughter to be dropped into such a vulnerable, sin-soaked atmosphere? No, I didn't. How could I imagine something so pure to be set down in something so evil. But the calling on her life was very clear to me. And I had to decide each and every day to believe that his presence was with her and she was apart from my dependence on God, that she was gaining her own dependence on him and that she was learning to trust him at every turn. 
This example of Hannah reveals this cost. But as I mentioned before, we don't see any hesitation. And I wish I could claim that same testimony. But he's brought me there. He has brought me there. But in her, we don't see this. She places her most cherished thing into God's hands and into his service at whatever cost. This demonstration of faith at peace is an exemplary model of how we are to live as God's women. Hannah likely did not even know yet the impact that Samuel's life would have when she held him as a baby, when she nursed him as a toddler, and then dressed him, packed his things up, and placed him in the hands of the priest Eli. She only knows at that point that God was faithful to have answered her prayers, to meet her need, and to fulfill the life in Samuel that God intended. And she was honored by it all. The most impactful point in this whole story and how it relates to us is that we may not know the consequences, the impact, the eternal purpose, or the reason for our sufferings and circumstances or the outcome of our obedience, but they should lead us into to prayer in faith. We may actually be called to hand over our children to spiritual service, or we may be asked to use our talents, our material goods, or our time and callings to things that we do not understand. But the obedience and surrender may lead to the use of God's hand on another's life, a strengthening of another ministry, a link in a chain that needs reinforcing, a big vision or a little vision. It demands that step of faith. Our understanding should not be the reason that we act in obedience, but it should be modeling the heart of Hannah. Her faith led her to him. Her belief in his sovereign grace and promises took her to the place of prayer and then to full surrender. Then her attention to his answers took her and reminded her that she could rejoice. We can think of other women in scripture who in moments of doubt took matters into their own hands to solve their problems and initiated self-appointed answers and goals. However, Hannah kept her faith in God alone. She waited and she lived out the peace that was provided for her, knowing that he was present within her circumstances and that she had been heard. If we could all live this way, what a testimony it would be to other women around us, to our daughters, our granddaughters, our friends and neighbors, those that we minister to. If we could demonstrate the joy and reality of this kind of living, living in peaceful surrender would be our daily reality. What would it take for us to live in this kind of faith day by day, knowing that he is present within our circumstances? and in the midst of our pain and disappointments and particular challenges. It's personal with him. Hopefully, it leads us to the place of prayer and the confidence to know that he is at work behind the scenes. He has a bigger vision 
and that great things will be accomplished if we wait and trust. She hands over Samuel and her psalm of thanksgiving reveals that with her desire fulfilled, she bursts into song and offers her gratitude to God for his goodness. She begins her prayer with, my heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no other, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah's story is found in 2 Samuel in the first two chapters. Then she is not mentioned again. Her song of praise is often compared and reflected in Mary's song of praise that you find in Luke 1, 46 through 50. Both women solidify their faith by verifying their belief that God is a covenant-keeping God, laying out the attributes of God that we aim to confess, such as his power, his holiness, his majesty, and his grace. We also learn from the text that they continued, Hannah and her husband continued their sacrifices each year, and that she made him a robe and took it to him. In chapter 219, we read that this took place as she prepared each year. And uh, I just think this detail of this story is just precious. We can all imagine her planning and sewing this robe, praying for him as she stitched it and bringing it to him every time they went to Shiloh each year. We learn that she was able to watch Samuel grow into the great prophet who would one day anoint David, the king who was to lead the people. The second emphasis of this study is to remind us that Jesus's life and ministry kept prayer at the forefront. As we read about his earthly ministry, we see that he taught his disciples and us to pray. He had a very earnest prayer life and prayed often for the unity of believers. There is nothing that bonds the hearts of his disciples and believers more than the commitment and act of praying alongside one another, bearing witness and seeing his faithfulness demonstrated in our own lives and in the lives of others. Prayer is the backbone of everything that we do in his name. Individual prayer and prayer with a body of believers who are committed to being an instrument in his larger vision. I love this quote, prayer is the Christian's chief act of faith. I, that moves me every time because we might admire people who are what we call prayer warriors or dedicated to a life of prayer. But my point is wanting to look at it tonight from the opposite view. What does it say if we are not praying? If we are not praying, that is evidence of a lack of faith and a lack of belief that prayers are effective. The discipline of prayer, the urgency for it, the act of obedience to do it because we are told to is the evidence that we believe that out of this obedience, God is moved and that we can make a difference in our circumstances and in the circumstances of others. These, as you know, are basic observations about prayer that you've already considered about its mystery 
about its central purpose in the life of the Christian. Anne Graham Lott says, if prayer is one of the supreme joys of life, the throbbing heartbeat of our relationship with God, the nearest we will be to God this side of heaven, our compass that helps keep us on the right path, if it is all this, why is it so hard? She says, because prayer is a battle, a fight, it's a spiritual warfare. Oswald Chambers reminds us that prayer is not preparation for the battle, it is the battle. My personal reason of why I think it's so hard, at least for me at times, is that because it requires waiting and it requires getting up off my knees, often without the knowledge of how he will work, our faith must lead us to peace and the confidence that when we get up off our knees after pouring our heart out to him, that we can leave our anguish there at the altar and move forward in that peace. Confident faith verifies what we believe of God's goodness and our understanding of his character. And Graham Lutz also urges us to see prayer as life's compass and always centered on him. She highlights Jesus' instruction in Matthew 6 to pray in secret, reminding us that Jesus himself often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Privacy in prayer not only matters, she says, but is essential because we must be alone with God, isolated from all props of human reason or help, where we hang on God alone and get in touch with the fountain of miracles. If we want to pray in such a way that heaven is moved and nations are changed, we must have a secret prayer chamber. She also urges us to pray, um, prepare for our prayer life, to have an established place to pray, an atmosphere to pray. We must have an attitude for prayer each day in all circumstances with thankfulness as scripture guides us to know. The key to thankfulness is not to view God through the lens of our circumstances, but to view one's circumstances through the lens of God's love and sovereign purpose. This prepared attitude for prayer is reflected in James 5.16 and is something to live by. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We have that promise. And we stay clean before him and dependent. And we have confidence that our prayers are powerful and effective because he tells us that. We already discussed Hannah's heart demonstrated by her obedience, which reveals her posture of faith. But another area to bring to attention is the impact of her witness. Her faith was demonstrated to Levi the priest. It was demonstrated in front of her husband and her family and relatives and the community. And it was witness to the other wife who had been a means of pain and torment. They all witnessed her handing over her son. To me, the testimony, this living testimony, as we mentioned, is likely the most precious thing to her to hand over. This confident faith is contagious and can be a powerful testimony. 
And I believe that her testimony to all those who witnessed what she did, um, the Lord used it and blessed her life even more richly than we can imagine. I wish we heard more about her story. Her love for God is demonstrated by the willingness to let her life be a testimony of her faith before others. It is costly. It is painful. But it, allow, it allows us to witness his work in a sacred and divine way out of the hands of humanity. There is a quote that I don't even know who said it, but it moves me. Never be afraid to test an unknown future to a known God. And Hannah knew her God. She loved him and trusted him. She knew him with fellowship and trust in a way that I hope that we all can enter in. Andrew Murray, in his book, Abiding in Christ, writes that during Jesus' life on earth, the phrase he most often used when speaking of the relationship of the disciples to himself was, follow me. But when about to leave for heaven, he gave them a new phrase, which described their more intimate and spiritual union with himself in glory, abide in me. He continues to write that there are many earnest followers of Jesus who fail to grasp the full meaning of these words. We may trust him for pardon and help to some extent and obey him, but we don't realize the closeness of the union and intimacy of fellowship that Jesus desires when he says, abide in me. In John 15, 1 through 12, we read, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Prayer is an act of obedience, an act of faith, a statement of our commitment to a relationship that is like no other. It is a surrender daily of the I do promise that you are my one and only. I will get on my knees, commune and abide with my God and then get up off my knees, believing and knowing that he is actively answering and caring tenderly for my spilt heart. That is what Hannah did. But it is what we must make our attitude daily and hourly in our attempt to abide in him. My son, who is a pastor in Seattle, recently presented a sermon that I think is very helpful and applicable tonight. He began his thoughts from Mark 12, 28, which is the story of a scribe who comes to Jesus and asks him what the greatest commandment in scripture really is. What best sums up what God desires from each of us? Jesus begins his answer by pulling a phrase from Deuteronomy 6, which begins with what we know as the Shema. 
a passage that has for thousands of years served as a reminder to God's people to keep him and his word at the very centerpiece of their lives. Understanding the heart of the Shema helps us to identify his desire for us. It is not necessarily a statement of belief, but an oath of loyalty describing a proper relationship between Yahweh and Israel, that he alone is their God. Not just a statement of monotheism amid an idol-worshiping culture, but an affirmation that we worship him and only him. So I will read Deuteronomy 6, uh, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This was Hannah's whole foundation of faith. Her heart came to him alone. No other gods, no other competition. She didn't pray to another. She didn't take actions into her own hands as other women in scripture have demonstrated. She acted in full devotion and trust in him. She was committed to an exclusive relationship that is central to his desire for us. We may question him and cry out, yes, but do we rise from our knees in full trust? Prayer is a reconfirmation of our commitment to him. How desperate are we to make sure that he alone is our life? Is anything competing with him, interfering with what he wants to complete within us? Beth Moore reminds us, the word of God is his primary healing agent. The scripture is the written word that reveals to us the living word who is able to deliver us. Psalm 107.20 says, he sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. If we rebel against God and don't obey, we are refusing his counsel and this healing power that is offered in his word. We may not recite our wedding vows each day to our husband, at least I don't. But in a way, each day we are saying, I do. Why not make sure that our hearts each morning after our prayer time get up from our knees with that same vow that whatever comes my way, I will know that you are my God, my rock, my salvation, and my deliverer. I do put my trust in you and in you alone. In early March of this last year, I was with my 94-year-old daddy as he breathed his last. And over the months that followed his death, we heard from many people of their love and gratitude for his life of service. He was a minister for over 70 years. We found out things about his acts of service through notes and emails from people for decades that knew him and the kindness that we had never known that he had expressed to others before. It was a really blessed time of testimony of a faithful life. But at his funeral, I read Ephesians 6, 
Christians are instructed here to be strong in the Lord by equipping themselves with the full armor of God, knowing that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, while taking hold of the shield of faith. Then, after arming oneself, they are instructed in verse 18 to pray without ceasing. Without ceasing is abiding. So, the image here is a fully decked out soldier on his knees. That's us. Fully equipped, but armed with a surrendered heart and humbly recognizing our full dependence on God. A Christian soldier is not armed to condemn or to destroy, but to redeem. We only have one weapon to be used against our adversary, which is God's word. But it won't do us any good if we don't know how to use it. It is not preaching and teaching and singing and strategizing. It is the word of God through prayer. We must know it. We must love it. And we need to be saturated with it. If we're not reading his word or praying, we're not in warfare. And therefore, we will not have the victory. Spiritual warfare is serious and our adversary is serious. So our armor needs to be serious as well. My desire tonight is to encourage you to develop a life of prayer like you've never had before. Rearrange your life around it, learning what it means to abide in him. To have the faith knowing that even before you begin to pray, you know he is working ahead of you. He is moving in our circumstances, desiring to show us great and mighty things that will be revealed to us because we are expecting them and know him. We should get up off our knees saying to ourselves these words, and this is our testimony, how wonderful it will be to see how he answers. I know that God is at work already and he will answer what joy and peace I have already in the knowledge that I get to witness his great and mighty works. Living the life of faith means not always knowing where you are going, but knowing and loving the one who is leading. Literally, a life of faith rooted in the knowledge of a person. It isn't a life of one glorious mountaintop experience after another, like soaring on eagle's wings but as a life of day in and day out consistency, a life of walking without fainting, as we read in Isaiah 40, 31, it is a faith that has been tried and proved and has withstood the test. I want to close by, let's pray Psalm 61. I, it, it has just been a blessing to me through the years. Hear my prayer, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to thee when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in thy tent forever and let me take shelter 
in thy, let me take refuge in the shelter of thy wings. Ladies, I want us to unite our hearts together while we are in fellowship tonight and take the opportunity to pray out of the book of Colossians. This is a call in Colossians to clothe ourselves with certain things, but I want us to pray it as a body of women. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the power and the beauty and the comfort of your word. Lord Jesus, we are privileged to have access to anything you want to say to us. And we are grateful that even in our unworthiness, we are the ones, your disciples, that you have entrusted with the revelation of your face to a lost world. We are worthy because you have entrusted the kingdom of God to us, your ready, willing disciples. We thank you for the words in Colossians 3, and we claim it as our own testimony of praise tonight. Therefore, as God's chosen women, we know we are holy and dearly loved. Lord, we ask for help to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Help us to bear with each other and to forgive whatever grievances we have against one another. Help us to forgive as you have forgiven. Help us to claim all of the virtues, but above all, love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Please let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and help us to be thankful. Let your word dwell in us richly as you teach us, as we teach others, and as we admonish one another with all wisdom, as we sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to God. And Lord, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, let us do it in your name while we are giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. Amen. <laughs>